Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. $450 million. That's a lot to pay for any painting, even if it is a Leonardo da Vinci. And here to help us understand the uh, complexities of the art world and the money involved is Stephen Lash. He is Chairman Emeritus of Christie's America, and he joins us here in our 1130 studio. Stephen Lash, thank you very much for being here. Let's just begin with that $450 million Leonardo da Vinci that was recently auctioned at a Christie's. Were you in the room during the auction process? I was in the room during the auction process, and it was one of those high moments in one's auction life. What was it like? Can you just describe it for us quickly? There was huge excitement. Um, There was anticipation and no knowledge of really what it would end up bringing. We were estimating the picture at $100 million. It was guaranteed at or about that level. Uh, and it ended up selling for $400 million plus our commission. How, how big was the crowd? The, there were close to 1,000 people attending the auction in several rooms at Christie's. Wow. Um, you, you said including commission, and I remember um, over Thanksgiving break, one of my relatives came up to me and said, that Leonardo da Vinci, do you know that there were $50 million of fees attached to it? And he said, what were those? So what were those? Uh, Christie's charges a typically a fee to the buyer and the seller. As you move up the scale in value, and $450 million does that smartly, <laughs> the fees are negotiated. Not the fees with the seller, but the way, in that case, we would divide the fees between ourselves and people like the guarantors who come in months before the auction and offer to put in a bid at a certain level. Tell people a little bit about your personal uh, background because that also informs some of the experience and skills that you bring to not only the art side of Christie's, but also the business side. I'm a lucky guy because I get paid to do what I love to do, which is to look at art, meet interesting people, and travel around the world all the time. Uh, My background is um, uh, privileged in the sense that I uh, chose my parents very wisely, and they encouraged me with this career. Um, but you were on Wall Street for, for a bit, right? I was on Wall Street, and people think that there's a great dichotomy between working on Wall Street and working at Christie's. But by your opening question, you know otherwise uh, that this is also in its way a financial business. But what I learned on Wall Street was the importance of long-term relationships the important time to see a client and is when nothing is at stake. And you're there to say you care about the client and her long-term needs. Okay, so who are 
the clients? Is it a handful of wealthy individuals that you speak with? We deal with a wide variety of, of people. Yes, some are wealthy, some are super rich. Others are modest people who place a premium on owning objects that have appreciated to dramatic levels. And it's so interesting to get to know these people and to watch them. There can be multi-million dollar collections in tiny little modest split-level houses in the suburbs of some regional city. And it's great fun to discover those. Talk a little bit, if you can, about, and I'm using this word badly, but inventory. In other words, there's got to be a process by which you and your team and the team at auction houses go out and try to uh, convince or, as you say, build relationships with potential sellers. Uh, how has your experience informed you about those making those kinds of connections? Because not everything is going to be a $400 million painting. Absolutely not. In fact, our average sale would be um, much, much less, uh, several thousand dollars, uh, perhaps. But what we do know is we're very fortunate in having a distinguished name. We're 250 years old, and we treasure that that reputation that we have. So everything is built on the trust that the public has in us. We, as a result, have wonderful records on what people have bought over the years. One of the real joys of the job, which you asked about, um, was our staff. We have tremendous specialists who are vastly knowledgeable about the works of art and very approachable. We're open to the public virtually seven days a week. And what these staff specialists like most is to talk to people who are interested in their subject, even if it's not about the most expensive painting we're going to sell. So in some ways, the concept of an auction house where people uh, stand around and hold up signs if they're interested in upping the bid is anachronistic in the Internet age. Is there any move to online sales of any sorts, or is this sort of an area that is uh, off-limits for that? No, not off-limits at all. Online sales have become hugely important to us. A business uh, opportunity for us is to make ourselves as accessible as possible to the public, to encourage people to come into the auction house, to let them know they don't have to pay an admission ticket, to let them know that we have extended hours, to let them know there are evenings when people can come in, they can even get a drink, and they're not charged for that. So online sales are a way for people to familiarize themselves with a uh, interesting process and once they're familiar, they're more comfortable in coming to the live auctions. I just want to quickly ask you about your desire for collecting. You've got a personal collection. Is there a piece from your ocean liner memorabilia collection that you particularly treasure? Give me about 20 seconds. Um, yes, I have wonderful murals um, that were trials for the old Queen Mary built in 1936. I read about them 
30 years ago, called up the artist on the telephone and said, do you have anything you might sell? And she said, yes. I wish that we could uh, share a picture of the shine in your eyes as you talked about that with our listeners, but uh, suffice it to just describe it. Stephen Lash, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen Lash, Chairman Emeritus of Christie's America in New York. And uh, Pim, I, I want to go uh, look at... Okay, I want to watch on, let's an go. Option. Yeah, let's go. Why not? I think that would be really fun. Yeah. Anyway. We want to focus a little bit on what's going on in Europe, where they are still going strong with their stimulus efforts and have yet to start raising rates. Simon Ballard joins us from London. Simon Ballard is a global credit strategist for Bloomberg. Simon, I want to talk a little bit uh, about Greece first and foremost, since 10-year yields in that nation dropped below 5% to the lowest level since 2009. Is this because of the ongoing stimulus from the European Central Bank, or is this because of something more fundamental? Well, I think it's probably a combination of uh, certainly the the ongoing stimulus from the central bank and the the chase for yield that has seen investors push further and further from from core Europe out to the periphery in terms of trying to find incremental yield for their uh, for their portfolios. But it's also sort of a reflection of the perceived fundamental change, if you wish, from from a, from, from from Greece's perspective. Um, and yes, you know, perhaps the market has a fairly short memory. Perhaps the you know the indebted situation of the Greek economy is still far from uh, far from robust. Um, but yeah, as you say, we're back down sub sub five percent. So it's a, it's <clears throat> it's an appreciation of of ongoing stimulus from the ECB, the backstop bid, and the gradually improving macroeconomic profile um, across the eurozone, which of course you know tends to lift all ships even if the uh, if the weaker vessels are still there on the edge but uh, you know they'll still they'll still ride on that uh, on that wave as as Greece is doing and just to sort of extrapolate out this uh, central bank backstop Brevin Howard uh, it was reported is starting up two funds to invest in the recovery of Greek assets going forward. It's trying to uh, preserve some of its client interest after getting a lot of withdrawals. And, uh, you know, yes, Greek uh, bonds are rallying in part because of this deal with its creditors uh, that it that it came to last week when it concluded a debt swap. Um, but it seems like there's sort of an air of, I don't know if I want to say desperation, but desperation uh, with respect to getting yield. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, that, it, there is to a certain extent. I mean, you're, you're fighting against, you're fighting with the uh, with the central banks in terms of trying to find liquidity and and yield. But I think if we, you know, we look at Greece in a little bit more detail, then you know, there are people talking about them. Or they, you know, they're coming back to the back to the public markets, becoming sustainable in terms of their you know self financing, albeit at a, a level that you know they still like a, a lower level of yield. But we're away from the the precipice, if you wish, of 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 of, of Debt conversion um, out of the euro, or, or so we say, sort of breakdown of the of the euro uh, zone itself, as was worse feared uh, at one stage when uh, you know Greece was trading in uh, in double digit yields. Um, so from that perspective, yes, you know we're we're on we're on a firmer footing. It's still it's still fragile, but it's firmer, and I think that's why we're seeing this uh, you know continued consolidation and compression in, uh, in 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 Greece and other peripheral yields. 
Uh, well, Simon, can I turn your attention now to Britain? Because I'm trying to understand something here. You know, I know that you've issued, well, I see you laugh, right? You have well done. We're all trying to understand Yeah, this. right. It doesn't, I, I'm trying to fit this together. The 50, you, you've got you've got a 50-year uh, guilt, right? A, a British government bond. Absolutely. Um, I believe the yield there is 1.63%. And uh, if you don't like the 50-year, uh, the they've got a yummy 40-year for you at 1.69. But then... Can you explain why the 30-year, which trades at 1.82, why would the 30-year be higher in yield than the 40 or the 50? And why would it be the actually lower uh, than than the 25-year? Why get are this. you trying to make this make sense? Oh, sorry. You okay. don't have to. You don't. You don't. Make Just this, draw the no. line and forget let's, it. Yeah. Let's call, let's call it liquidity debt. Let's call it liquidity, Pim. And it, it really is all about the liquidity in the thirty-year part of the curve relative to forty or fifty. Forty or fifty-year gilts get bought. They get put down. They're away. That's it. You don't see them until maturity, a little, um, or, or probably very little. Whereas the thirty-year is, you know, the, the you know the long the long-term benchmark. It will trade with with much greater fluidity, um, and hence you probably see that pricing, that pricing anomaly. Um, that little huck up in the uh, in the curve going out to uh, going out thirty years relative to re- relative to the longer days. I'd say it's all to do with liquidity and uh, and buy and hold mentalities in the uh, at the longer end. All right, so uh, it has to do only with the liquidity. Is it can that be said for for other markets? I mean, is that similar to let's say what's going on in uh, places like I don't know France, for example? I mean, because I'm looking there, and you know you kind of have a similar situation. Uh, and what's the reasoning? Well, again, it's because you know the the thirty, the, sorry, the forty or fifty year paper gets bought by asset managers or or, or you, t- you know the guys that have the long, the long duration asset liability. You know, so the real investors versus the speculators. Well, so that would like the investor part of the curve versus the speculator part of the curve. Well, there is that, but let's not say that there aren't sort of real money investors at thirty years as well. But there tends to be a greater degree of liquidity and, and new issues, long dated new issues, will be priced off the long bond, be priced off the thirty year. They won't be priced off the forty year or the 50, unless it's it's a specific corporate bond that comes with a with a 40 or 55 year uh, maturity, should we say, as we've seen over the course of the last week. But generally, the the 30 year is traded to a much greater extent than 40 or 50 year paper, and that makes it more volatile in terms of the uh, the price and yield prof- profile. But Pim, it also suggests that real money investors do not believe that inflation is going to necessarily pick up. Thank you. So much more over the next. 40 years yes. uh, that they are okay with locking in a 40-year paper at lower rates. Well, they won't be around paper. in 40 years yeah, either so if they bought matter. them so that they've managed to maintain that kind of asset liability mix, right? Yeah. All right. Well, now I know. Draw the chart. Don't worry about it. Thank you very much uh, for being with us. Simon Ballard is our global credit strategist for Bloomberg. He joins us from London. Fascinating story today on the Bloomberg by Matt Robinson, financial regulation reporter of Bloomberg News. And it's about the SEC looking into how banks sometimes help hedge funds to perhaps uh, prop up values of bonds to uh, perhaps make their books look a little better toward month end or year end. And uh, Matt joins us now. Can you just over explain uh, the overall investigation, where it is right now and uh, what you're learning about the steps ahead? Sure. So the agency has actually been looking at this market ever since the crisis. And um, 
as ever since the crisis, basically it was lightly regulated for years and years up until the financial crisis. Mortgage-backed securities, you know, thinly traded bonds, you know, sort of the alphabet soup of, of debt that led to the crisis. So they had a hands-off approach after the crisis. They started digging in. And, uh, you know, we've seen some criminal cases against sell-side traders over bond prices. And this is sort of like the next chapter in uh, their investigation looking at how, you know, traders uh, value their books and how hedge funds value their books and how, you know, because since there's a lot of wiggle room in pricing, are people taking advantage? Matt, could you just step back and explain to people that are not familiar with the relationship between hedge funds and banks, why this would be taking place? And maybe even what role do hedge funds play in the day-to-day operations of banks and vice versa? Right. This is, um, you know, because, you know, hedge funds are such big clients of banks, you know, these, you know, thinly traded securities where prices move a lot. Wait, they, wait. And, and when you say customers of banks or clients of banks, that could be that they're borrowing money from the bank. They could be that all of their uh, sort of administrative or their detailed operations are housed you know, in a bank or right. a variety of different relationships. Right, right. Yeah, you know, buying derivatives, you know, buying IPOs. So, you know, a portfolio manager of these very illiquid securities is usually kind of walled off from valuation because of these, you know, because of, because they're so conflicted. But what they can do is if there isn't good pricing by, you know, uh, market providers, they can go, they can call up a trader, say, well, I think this bond feels like an 85 this month. And, you know, the bond, you know, when in reality, it's, it should probably be 80. So that portfolio manager can go to the valuation committee, be like, listen, I have a recent quote. This is fresh. This is from a market participant. You know, uh, why don't we call, why don't we split the difference? Let's call it 82 and a half. All right. Take, taking, taking a step back here also, let's just sort of uh, paint a picture of what hedge funds do if they have assets that don't trade all that much like some of these bonds. What they do is uh, at the end of a quarter or at the end of the year, they will put a some kind of valuation on their assets that they then tell their clients, their investors, to give a sense of how their assets are doing. So, you know, just to get a sense, what is the potential consequence of this action if hedge funds are, say, uh, overstating the value of their assets and telling their clients that their returns are substantially larger than they perhaps actually are? So, you know, the SEC has been working with uh, criminal authorities. There was a, a case um, last year with uh, portfolio manager at, at Visium Asset Management, who's doing just that, saying, um, you know, getting getting better price quotes that took a negative month, you know, or negative quarter to a positive one. I mean, but the way that I'm thinking about this is it has potentially pretty vast uh, implications if this is a widespread practice, because it means that should uh, the market fall or should the uh, hedge fund have to sell some of the assets all of a sudden those valuations tumble much more than people are expecting when you actually have to find a market rather than just sort of propping things up and, and sort of falsely uh, marking things way above where they would trade, no? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, because, you know, depending, it all depends on redemptions. I mean, if if they're, you know, if you're going to have widespread redemptions, yeah, you know, that will, you know, crush valuations. But for a lot of these firms, you know, they're invested in a lot of different credit. You know, they're probably going to sell out of the more liquid stuff first. Is this really because you've got to be able to show the customer 
a variety of numbers. You've got to show them returns. You've got to show them valuations. And that if this was really a big deal, this would also hurt the banks, right? Because if you're a bank and you've got a client and you're housing their collateral and you're giving them a valuation for that collateral, maybe the bonds that they purchased, and if that valuation is too high, that's going to skew the way you lend the money. Right. Well, I mean, what the SEC is concerned about is having, you know, one bond, one price. You know, if if one part of the bank is is you know has one price here and then another part for a favorite client there, the same thing with hedge funds. They want to they want it to have like you know conformity, you know, with those right. Numbers. But does that really make sense? In the because if you have something that is thinly traded, uh, you're going to find you know one group of investors who know the real value and are willing to put a price and put money behind it and then someone else it might be packaged into some larger investment entity well, how would you be able to tease out the value well the, what the, what the SEC would want to know is like all right did you follow the same process throughout you can't pick this process this time another process you know tomorrow it's 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 this is a fascinating topic because it's also a, such a slippery uh, area where people will pay a different price depending on how much they have to sell, depending on a lot of things. It's not just reliance, say, on uh, whether you think you're going to get your money back from the company that's borrowing the money or the uh, individual. So it's a fascinating issue. Uh, really well done. We look forward to uh, hearing more about it. Yes, indeed. Thanks very much uh, for being with us, and thanks for the story. Matt Robinson is our financial regulator, regulation reporter, I beg your pardon, uh, for Bloomberg, uh, speaking about the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, said to probe whether banks have helped hedge funds inflate their returns. Nuclear energy is much more established in Europe than it is in the U.S. Just by way of comparison, about 20 percent of the electricity in the U.S. is fueled by nuclear energy, compared with 75 percent in France. Here to give us more perspective is Bob Freeman, vice president of the nuclear fuel for North America for Arriva, and as well as Seth Gray, president and chief executive officer of Lightbridge Corporation. Uh, thank you both for joining us, Bob. I want to start with you and get a sense of what the main obstacle has been to uh, bring uh, more nuclear energy to the U.S. and uh, what inroads are being made there? Sure. The difficulty with bringing new nuclear to the United States has typically been the uh, initial startup costs. The, it costs a large amount of money to build a nuclear power plant that's going to last 60 to 80 years, uh, as well as public opinion and some regulation difficulties to uh, bring the technology that's been around for 50 years to a larger, um, larger supply. Uh, Seth Gray, uh, the ability to contain nuclear uh, energy is then related to the ability to contain any fissible uh, material. I wonder if you could just uh, offer uh, some details about your experience. I know you've worked in the Middle East uh, helping to kind of create these containment-like uh, programs. Just give us an update on how that works. Talking about two areas, one is physical containment, 
of very thick steel and concrete structures that keep within them um, any material in the event of an incident. For example, at Three Mile Island, nobody was injured because everybody, everything was kept inside the, the containment facility. And secondly, we're talking about technologies and safety cultures that also um, prevent or mitigate the effects of any accident as it's happening. And Areva, Bob's company, has been a leader in that area. So talk to us, Seth, about the agreement that Lightbridge uh, just came to with Areva. Well, when Bob talked about the obstacles to nuclear power, they really come down to public and governmental concerns about nuclear safety and market and company concerns about economics. So Lightbridge has invented a new type of nuclear fuel, a new technology that will work in the existing reactors as well as new ones that will be built that dramatically improve the economics of nuclear power generation by letting the reactors produce more energy and significantly improve the safety of the reactors as well. And we've been working with four of the largest nuclear utilities um, to help us design the fuel, make sure it meets their needs. We've patented it. And now we've signed these agreements with Areva. Uh, we're forming a joint venture. We expect to sign the final joint venture operating agreement this month and launch the joint venture company in the first quarter of next year to manufacture and sell this nuclear fuel. And a large U.S. Uh, utility has actually already signed the first letter of intent with us to be the first to commercially demonstrate this new technology in their reactors to show the economic and safety advantages of this fuel. And combined with Areva's tremendous industrial capacity, knowledge, experience, and global reach, uh, we intend for this to be a significant product in the nuclear power industry. Bob, do you believe that this new fuel will invigorate the U.S. nuclear power industry? And will it maybe even uh, galvanize more uh, people who are worried about climate change, uh, CO2 emissions, uh, environmental uh, issues. Will this galvanize those people to be more active in supporting nuclear power? It absolutely has the potential to do so. If you can take existing structures and you can uh, allow 10 to 17% more power out of them without actually creating new power plants, so use the existing footprints, um, so you're not creating more, you're just producing more, as well as improve the safety. This fuel operates at a centerline temperature about 1,000 degrees C lower than conventional fuels, which allows it to be safer, which the public is very interested in, in uh and seeing, as well as producing economic benefits, as Seth had mentioned, that make the power producers um, excited about the technology, interested in investing it, and without having to build a new power plant where you can just simply change the fuel design and get those benefits, it's definitely attractive. Bob, can you give us an estimate of uh, what proportion of U.S. Uh, electricity usage would should come from or, or could come from uh, nuclear sources within the next 10 years? I mean, just to give us a sense, if it's currently at about 20 percent of energy used by the U.S., what could you see, say, 10 years from now? 
So without creating new actual footprint reactors and using just this fuel, I would see a good 17% improvement if this fuel was applied to all the existing reactors. So 37%, in other words. No, it's 17% on 20%, so probably move it up to about 25%. Got it. And, uh, you know, maybe just, uh, Seth, if you could uh, offer your experience working with other uh, countries and what some of the obstacles were and how you managed to overcome them, because this is not an issue that is just contained by geography. It is a transnational issue. Well, first of all, we've been very selective as to which countries we've worked with, with very responsible governments that want to comply with the highest international standards uh, of nuclear safety. And in our experience, uh, the countries prioritize safety, but obviously will choose natural gas or renewables if that is the uh, better better choice, because those are safe, too. And what we've designed here and we're bringing to market with Areva is a fuel that will provide all these countries really the lowest cost way of generating electricity on their grids. We've designed this fuel so with the 10 or 17 percent power upgrade that Bob described, uh, upgrading a reactor with this fuel that added electricity will be the lowest cost electricity on the grid in those countries, cheaper than if they added coal or natural gas or renewables. So the countries we've worked with are are keenly watching what we're doing here. I was thinking for the United Arab Emirates is the most uh, visible one, I guess, that you've worked with. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Thanks very much, uh, gentlemen. Much appreciated. Uh, Seth Gray is the president and the chief executive of a Lightbridge Corporation. Bob Freeman, we thank you as well. A vice president for nuclear fuel for North America for uh, Arriva, uh, based in Paris. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.